0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, that's uh, just incredible and amazing, and uh, I'm a veteran quizzer, I don't know, uh, I grew up quizzing and... uh, I remember one of the huge uh, studies we did on the book of Acts, and so I was thinking about that this morning already. It's Pentecost Sunday, uh, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, in one accord, and suddenly a rushing mighty wind filled the room, and what looked like tongues of fire began to settle on them, and they began to speak in unknown tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And I want us to think about that reality. I want us to think about sort of the nuances of Acts chapter 2. They were all together and they were in one accord. Unity matters. And, and in that setting, as they were all together in one accord, the power of the Holy Spirit was manifest on them and they began to speak. And, and, and one of the great, profound things about that story is what happens next. They spilled out into the streets and were told that every single person heard in their own language. And so. You know, sometimes we get to talk a lot about the speaking in tongues part, and we forget about the hearing part. And I just want to emphasize that as the Holy Spirit does His work in us, as we come together in one accord, and the Holy Spirit does His work, people hear in their own language. And there's a lot of different languages. In fact, our our, our city, our country, is being torn apart by lots of different voices. And my prayer this morning as we come together as the Church of Jesus Christ is that everyone would hear in their own language, that that as we come together in one accord, as we gather together in our hearts and minds and spirits to pray, plead, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that as we gather into that one accord that the Holy Spirit would come and would give utterance to words that would allow everyone to hear in their own language what that looks like and what that means and what that involves. I'm thinking about John 17 that we highlighted a few weeks ago, uh, where Jesus is praying in the garden, verse 23, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. And I think it's such a powerful thought. We get hung up on so many things about what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ, but Jesus says, I'm in them and, and, God, you're in me, and I want to be brought to complete unity. And by this unity, by coming together, by being in one accord, that's how the world knows who Jesus really is and, and what He represents. And, and so I'm inviting you into that space this morning as we talk about a vulnerable new normal and what that might look like and what that might mean. In fact, what I'd like for you to think about is the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is the smallest seed in the garden, but a man took it and put it in the ground, and it grows to be one of the biggest trees. The kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman worked into 60 pounds of flour. There is a smallness about the kingdom of God that matters. There is a vulnerability in that smallness, and that's significant. And I want us to think about what that vital vulnerable smallness is all about and why it matters and why it matters to you today and why it matters to me and why it matters to what's happening in our country through these last few days back in 1985 on november 18th you've probably heard the story in fact you probably watched the movie that came out uh, several years ago uh, in 2011 it was called the blind side and an event happened on november 18th 1985 and And so let me give you a little preface to what that's all about. Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Blind Side, and in the book, he's highlighting a whole storyline that sort of culminates at November 18th, and that storyline involves a particular player. His name is Lawrence Taylor. And Lawrence Taylor entered the NFL, and immediately he changed the way the game is played. He He was so disruptive to the way the rules, the guidelines, how it always had worked. He was so powerful physically and so athletic that he changed the way the game was played. That had already been going on for a number of years when that Monday night event happened, November 18th, the New York Giants playing the Washington Redskins. And the Washington Redskins ha- had a, 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 an offensive line that was sort of well-known. They, they, they were, you know, they, they were kind of famous. In fact, uh, they're still today called the Hogs. And so if you're a devoted football fan, you probably know something about that. Uh, But very few people, only the most devoted people, knew them by any other thing. None of them knew their individual names. And so on that night, November 18, 1985, uh, you had that moment, that play, in which Lawrence Taylor breaks into the backfield, tackles Joe Theismann, his leg is broken, his career is ended, and, and the book highlights the fact that it changed the way the game is played. It crystallized a moment. And it features the story about Michael Orr, who grows up to be a left tackle in the NFL. Uh, The dialogue of the movie runs this way. Now, y'all would guess that more often than not, the highest paid player on an NFL team is a quarterback. And you'd be right. But what you probably don't know is more often than not, the second highest paid player is, thanks to Lawrence Taylor, a left tackle. Because as every housewife knows, the first check you write is the mortgage, but the second is for the insurance and the left tackle's job is to protect the quarterback from what he can't see coming, to protect his blind side. The ideal left tackle is big, but a lot of people are big. He's wide in the rear, massive in the thighs. He has long arms, giant hands, and feet as quick as a hiccup. Something significant happened on that night. And, and, and just to give you an idea about how obscure some of these people are that do what suddenly became this vital work... That night, the starting left tackle for the Washington Redskins was not in the game. He had suffered an injury. So obscure are these individual people that Joe Eisman didn't know that his starting left tackle was not in the game and referred later to the fact that he had given up the sack that ultimately broke his leg. And so something transformed that night. Some people who had served in obscurity were brought to a place of prominence. That night changed everything From that moment on, left tackle became this incredibly important position. It became first-round material. It became highly celebrated. It became uh, compensated at levels that are so important. And I just want this to sink into you. For people who serve in obscurity, that is incredibly rare. Most of us never have a moment, a crystallizing moment, in which what we do in the background and the ways in which we serve in smallness and invulnerability ever gets brought to light. And I'm guessing for a lot of us as we gather in this place and think about what that looks like, that you understand what it means to serve in an invisible role. I don't think there's any place that is more difficult to serve than in obscurity, in a place where the smallness of what we do begins to seem insignificant. It begins to seem unimportant. And that somehow what I'd like to convey this morning from a biblical perspective is how vital it is that people serve in this vulnerable way, that you don't stop, that you don't give up. You may never get your moment, but it still matters. The work matters. What we do matters. How we contribute matters. If I were to ask you this question this morning, what percentage of people do you imagine feel that their work is adequately noticed and adequately understood and adequately appreciated? What would you guess? I guess, I'm guessing it would be fairly low, maybe like 20% of the people or maybe 10% or 5%. How many people really feel like someone else gets what they're contributing? Somebody else understands it. Somebody else celebrates it. We don't really do that in our culture. We, we celebrate heroics. We, we celebrate the standouts. We celebrate the best of the best. We celebrate status. We celebrate titles. And I think all of that contributes and adds to our sense of invisibility. Ironically, the biblical story is full of obscure people. So if I were to say to you this morning, I'd like for you to talk to me about the big 12. I'd like for you to talk to me about the apostles, about the disciples. I'd like for you to tell me everything you know. Well, you'd probably rattle off some stuff about James and Peter and John, and you might mention Matthew. But after that, you'd have a hard time. I'm not sure how much you could tell me. In fact, if you wanted to find out what happened to all of those apostles, it would be difficult. It would, you'd have a hard time You'd have to dig, you'd have to really try to figure out, because the gospel celebrates simple acts of service. Matthew 20, 26, not so with you, instead whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I I was thinking as I was watching the video of our quizzing kids, and I was just thinking about the reality of they've been studying for a year. I'm not sure any of us even know or thought about or celebrated or even knew what their names were or how it all worked. And then on a Sunday morning, they get they get introduced by the voice of the Lakers, and we get to celebrate a little bit, and we get to. Fi- it just seems to me that you and I should look around and celebrate and recognize that there's all kinds. Of, I'm not sure how any of us would adequately say what it might mean in our hearts for our kids. To be committed in that way, studying, learning, growing, kind of convicting, isn't it? And so, the smallness of the kingdom, the, the vital vulnerability of smallness, it really matters. It matters that you keep going. It matters that you keep trying. It matters that you keep putting in the time and you keep doing the things that are right to do. Even when it seems like nobody notices And nobody understands. The truth is, serving is a place that lacks recognition. It lacks understanding. It lacks celebration. And the most vulnerable place that you can serve in the world is in obscurity. It's in a place where it's not recognized. Never has the need been greater for a a mighty army of people who are willing to serve in this vital and vulnerable place of smallness. I think that's so true right now in our culture, in our world, in our country. As we battle over issues of racism and justice and fairness. As we form lines that divide us. As we, as we express our opinions. As we feel angry. They were in one accord. When the Holy Spirit came and gave the ability to speak in ways that the listeners could hear. I in them and you in me, may they be united in a way that that it testifies that you sent me, that something different is going on among these people. That the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground. It's like yeast worked into 60 pounds of flour. It rises up, it builds up, it's it's, it's impregnating the culture in a way that, that brings love and grace and mercy and justice, and, and 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 there's not an ethnicity, there's not a race, there's not a group of people, there's not anyone who feels left out. Because we are together in one accord, and we care, and we love, and we don't draw lines. We don't divide. We don't fight. I thought, you know, what would be fun is to is to, to highlight some significant people in history who served absolutely... People who I'm betting you do not know their names and yet have contributed in, in crazy ways to what has happened in the world. So I don't know about you, but when I started to research this, I, I realized I'm not sure how to search it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you would enter. So, so I tried a couple of things. Uh, what would you put in the search engine? I, I tried this. Famous people who are unknown... That doesn't make any sense, does it? Unknown people who should be famous. Didn't get any hits on that. Finally, I started getting somewhere when I searched significant people behind famous figures. And then I started to get some information. If I said the name to you, Ibe Iworks or UB Iworks, there's no consensus on even... I love this. There's no consensus on how to properly pronounce this man's name. And so if I said to you, Ibe IWORKS or UBIWORKS, maybe that rings no bells. Well, let me tell you who he is and what happened to him. He was a close friend with, with uh, Walt Disney, and, and as a close friend of Walt Disney, they actually served in Kansas City together. They started out in an advertising agency in Kansas City together uh, doing animations for products. And, uh, and Disney decided he was coming to California and he was going to make it all happen, and he left in the early 20s and came to California, uh, but Ubi Iwerks stayed in Kansas City, continuing to draw pictures for ads in the weekly newspaper. It wasn't long before uh, Walt Disney decided that he had to have Uh, Ive Iwerks with him, and so he convinced him to come in 1924 to California, and he came to California, and he set up shop, and they formed the Disney company. Actually, Walt had already formed it. He gave 20% of the company to Ive Iwerks, and they began to work. Subsequently, the contract uh, that, that Disney had with a local distributor for what had become his most famous animation, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, uh, and, and they had a breach and a break, and, and the distributor took the rights uh, to uh, that animation and hired most of uh, Disney's animators out from under him, uh, but Ibe Iwerks refused to leave. And so he and Walt Disney sat down together and realized they needed to come up with a new character. And the new character that the two of them created together was a character named Mickey Mouse. Over the next few years, the shorts of Mickey Mouse saved the company and actually set it on its trajectory. In order to accomplish these shorts that were being created, Ibe Iwerks was creating 600 illustrations a day to churn out those shorts, and I bet you didn't even know his name. I bet you never heard of him, at least most of us never have ronald wayne most of you know the story of steve jobs and steve wozniak you you know about the story of apple but you may have never heard the name of ronald wayne ronald wayne was an older businessman in fact he was an accountant and when wozniak and jobs were having difficulty at the beginning and the outset in the early 70s of the apple company uh, they they brought him in in order to mediate their arguments. In fact, they, they decided that he was so good at what he did that they would give him a percentage of the company, and they gave him 10% uh, of Apple. They kept 45% each, but he was the tiebreaker. He was the one who ultimately would decide when there was conflict between them. And Ronald Wayne was a person that was gifted. In fact, Wozniak would later say about him that he could do all of the things that he and Jobs didn't know how to do. And so uh, about a year into the growth of Apple and what was happening, uh, Ronald Wayne became a little bit, you know, he, he, he was an older guy and he said, I'm not sure I'm into this. I don't know if I can put in and wait for this company. And so he decided to leave the company and, and, and he sold his shares back to Jobs and Wozniak and he sold it for $800, his 10% of Apple. They later paid him an additional $1,500 so that he could relinquish all rights to the company. That 10% of Apple today would be worth about $35 billion. Both Jobs and Wozniak look back and say it was the influence of Ronald Wayne and his steadiness in those early days in his creation of policy and structure, even designing the first Apple logo, that actually allowed the company to be on firm footing and accomplish all the things it accomplished. But I bet you don't know the name Ronald Wayne. How about this name, William Cochran? William Cochran was born in Ireland. He immigrated to the United States. He became a very eminent lawyer in New York City. He served multiple terms in Congress. But somewhere along the way, his paths crossed with the mother of Winston Churchill. And after the death of her first husband, they dated for a time and there was some relationship there. And through that, Cochrane met Churchill. And Cochrane was known in his time as the most eloquent speaker in the world. And it turns out that Churchill came to the United States and, and, and spent some time with Cochrane. And, and in that tutorial, in that process, in that mentoring, he began to give to Churchill what he had learned about public speaking. He began to teach him all the things that he understood about what it meant to be a great person who could speak and articulate well. And Winston Churchill took it on. He, 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 he began to emulate and he began to do the things that he was taught. In fact, he would later reflect that it was Cochrane's influence that taught him the beauty and the power and the eloquence of speech. Obviously, Winston Churchill and his ability to speak helped shape the world. It, it shapes the world we live in right now, people who have served in obscurity. Paul is the missionary to the world. He's He's world famous. He rises to prominence quickly. He's, his conversion is recorded in Acts 9, but by Acts 13, he takes over the entire story. He becomes this almost mercurial sort of character. He, he writes letters to the churches. His missionary journeys become epic. They, I don't know if you know this, but his letters, his work makes up 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament. His Volume of work accounts for more than 25%. 28% of the entire New Testament are the writings of this one person. He's probably the most well-known and talked-about character in the New Testament. And yet, this is a person who leans so heavenly on others. Listen to Philippians 2 as he highlights two of those obscure people who have served with him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come back soon, But I think it necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that you when you see him again you may be glad and I may have less anxiety so then welcome him in the lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of christ and he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me so what i want to do this morning is quickly give you two quick character studies the first one is timothy Timothy was Paul's closest ally. He was the person who walked nearest to him in the journey. They meet on his second missionary journey, and they are close from that time forward. As we read the New Testament, we find out he was with Paul in Philippi, he was with him in Thessalonica, he was with him in Berea, he was with him in Corinth, he was with him in Ephesus, he was visiting him in prison in Rome. He's associated in the writing of no fewer than 5 of Paul's letters: 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, and when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he specifically brings greetings from Timothy, so we know they were together in the writing of that letter. Barclay in his writing talks about the great qualities of Timothy, and, and, and he was that person who represented, he's the patron saint of those who are willing to serve in obscurity and yet are vital, vital to the kingdom of God. When Paul sent Timothy, it was like Paul himself was delivering the information. It was like Paul himself. It was a level of confidence in which Paul would send him and he would receive information from him. And it was as good as Paul being there in person, at least almost as good. Timothy was capable. He was unselfish. He was reliable. You could make a strong argument that Paul's work would never have been what it became without Timothy. And yet Timothy served in obscurity. He, he lived out what it means to live a vital and vulnerable smallness in the kingdom of God. The second character study is about Epaphroditus. We, we meet him only in this letter. What has unfolded is that the church at Philippi has sent a gift, a monetary gift to Paul, and they have sent it by way of Epaphroditus. He is supposed to take the money and deliver it to Paul, but he's also supposed to stay and support Paul. And so he's supposed to be there. He's supposed to help Paul out in prison. And the first thing we find out is he must have been a a, a man of outstanding character to have the, the, the church of Philippi say, here's the money set off across the country, you know, all of the vulnerability of traveling with cash, and take it to Paul and then stay. Epaphrodite is supposed to have been a person of great courage. Uh, guilt by association was a big deal in the first century. And so he goes to a person who is being accused basically of treason and he associates himself. He willingly associates himself with that person. And so we begin to kind of get some glimpse about who he is. Upon his arrival in Rome, he falls gravely ill and he almost dies, but he begins to heal and he finally fully recovers. And now Paul has decided that he wants to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. But he knows that if he sends him back, that they're going to think he's failed, that somehow they're going to think less of him because he, he didn't stay for the whole time that Paul was in prison. And so Paul begins to craft there in this letter sort of a, a statement that says, I want you to welcome him on. And the way he does this is he begins to use language that will launch something in the minds of those Philippian readers. The first things he says about Epaphroditus is that he's a brother, he's a fellow worker, he's a fellow soldier, but then he uses a key word. He is an apostle. He is an apostle. And Paul's intention is that they associate him in a very real way with the original twelve. Paul considered himself to be an apostle, a person who had seen Jesus face to face. He calls himself a man born out of time because he didn't see Jesus during his earthly life, but he saw him in a vision on a road to Damascus. And now he he allows that title to be given. He says of Epaphroditus, he is an apostle. That's a key word. And then he uses this powerful Greek word in, in describing him. The word is Ligoras. And Ligoras means uh, it was an ancient word that, that meant benefactor of the state, benefactor of the city. So in the ancient world, there were people of wealth who would take on certain civic responsibility. Uh, They would, at their own expense, uh, fund all kinds of civic operations. Uh, They might put in a city park, or they might build a road, or they might fund uh, a ship and its crew. They might uh, pay for the training of athletes who would represent the city in the Olympic Games. They were benefactors. They were people who were so civically minded, who were sacrificially doing a greater good, that they became known as the Latigors, and And so, at this moment, Paul not only calls him an apostle but he gives him this Greek label. What he's saying is, what I have found in Epaphroditus is the kind of person who serves in an obscure way with great distinction, and I want you, and he gets very specific. I want you to welcome people like him home. I want you to celebrate him. I want you to regard him as a person who has incredibly succeeded in his life and his journey and his work. He's done way more than you ever expected of him, and you should welcome him, and you should honor him. And it makes such an important difference. I think as we think about this, I'm speaking to a lot of you. I think there's a lot of people out there today who are wondering if what you do matters. Maybe you're wondering if this service to Jesus Christ matters at all. As our Countries torn apart, as people outside in the culture are accusatory and can't seem to agree on much of anything, as leaders posture and de- defend and blame. And is it really any different inside the church? Are we distinctly somehow unique? I in them and you in me, may they brought to be brought to complete unity that, that the world would know that you sent me. It's unity. And they were all together in one accord. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, suddenly a noise like a rushing mighty wind filled the room and tongues that looked like fire set upon their heads. And the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues. And every person heard in their own language. Is that descriptive of us? Is it descriptive of you? What you do matters. What you say matters. How you posture matters. Mark Twain said these words, obscurity and a competence, that is the life that is best worth living. Aldous Huxley, I love this quote. I'm afraid of losing my obscurity. Genuineness only thrives in the dark, like celery. (laughs) Please, please, please listen to this quote from Rick Warren. You may be serving in obscurity in some small place, feeling unknown and unappreciated. Listen, God put you where you are for a purpose. He has every hair on your head numbered, and He knows your address. You'd better stay put until He chooses to move you. He will let you know if He wants you somewhere else. See, my question to you this morning is really this. What are you doing? And why? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in the garden. It's like yeast that's worked into 60 pounds of flour. Listen, there is a vital and a vulnerable nature to the smallness of the kingdom of God. And if you are feeling that smallness, this is a vulnerable new normal. I was thinking about this, and I'm going to just close with this. I was thinking about this reality, that in this new normal, there are some things that stand out. Here's who we're celebrating. I don't know, think about this for just a second with me. It wasn't that many days ago that what we really thought was a big work of the church where the people that stood on the platform and did the talking or the singing or all of that stuff. But it seems to me that the people who have been out front sort of have had to take a back seat. They've had to step back because that in-person, that reality, that interaction thing, it's happening in a whole different way. And even as we're celebrating this moment, I'll tell you what I think matters. I'll tell you whose who's obscurity, whose small and vital and vulnerable service Matters, it's relationship experts. I, I'll tell you what matters in this are people who know how to connect, people who know how to care, people who know how to love, people who know how to make a phone call or write or drop off a, a meal, people who are relationship experts. Maybe they've been sure, maybe we take for granted who they are, but man, they've been brought to prominence in these days. It is vital. These people who serve in such a way. What about this reality? Technology experts. I mean, we know they're there. We know that right now in this room, as you are listening to me, that that somebody's running media, and somebody's switching cameras, and somebody's calling the shots back there, and somebody has put together all of this technology, and the lights are working, thankfully, and everything is running And maybe a few months ago, we took that for granted. We sort of knew all the work went on. But I guarantee you, you can't imagine the number of hours people are spending in obscurity to make sure the technology works so that we are able to meet in this way. And while they may have been in obscurity a few weeks ago, I'll tell you something. Anybody can stand up here and talk, but there are very few people that can actually make it work. And something's changing And I don't want to go back to the way it was. I don't want to forget about these relationship people who weave together what the church is really about. And I don't don't want to take for granted these technology people that work in relative obscurity so we can read a post or we can celebrate together. It matters. There is a vital vulnerability to the smallness of the kingdom, but we got to serve anyway. What about Organizers. People with the gift to organize information and people and lists and databases and, and phone numbers and addresses and, man, it's become invaluable in these days. Maybe even in the simplicity of your own home, what, what you took for granted, what seemed to be easy, going to the grocery store and preparing food, paying the bills, buying clothes, whatever. But if your home is blessed with an organizer, then, then suddenly someone's making sense out of the chaos. There are thousands, millions of organizers who underlie every organization, who make it work, who make it vital. We ought to celebrate it. More than that, if you're one of those organizers, if you're one of those technology people, if you're one of those relationship experts, stop questioning your worth. You have purpose. Your vulnerability, the smallness of the kingdom work you do is vital to everything that happens. What about, a couple more, and then we'll, what about creatives? There's a fellowship, I call the fellowship of the blank page. There are people who understand what it means to sit in front of a blank page and know that you are the starting point for something. And in these days, I mean, don't you much more appreciate every person who writes a decent TV show, who writes a movie worth watching? Don't you appreciate more than ever People who spend the time and energy to put together a video that, that, that somehow get the voice of the Lakers to announce quizzing kids. Don't you appreciate those creatives who sit in space by themselves and think what might be valuable to someone? What might help them learn? What might open their hearts? This is a vital, vulnerable kind of smallness, and it matters, and we ought to celebrate it, and we ought to know we are it. This is the nature of the kingdom. The last one I'd highlight is this, hospitality people. I don't know how it works, but some people can make you feel loved and welcome and at home even virtually. They just can. And we don't highlight it, and people don't wear badges around, but you know them, and you know who they are, and you know how they make you feel when they talk to you and when you encounter them. And it matters. And so if you're any of these people, Relationship experts, technology people, organizers, creatives, hospitality people. I just want you to hear me. Those are just five that popped into my head. There are so many others. You are vital. Your work matters. There is no place more vulnerable to serve than in the place of smallness or obscurity. But the kingdom of God is about a mustard seed. It is about yeast that's worked into the flour. And then I want to close with this one thought. How do we respond to what's going on in our country? How do we respond to the divisiveness of racism and and justice and mercy? We respond with smallness. Whatever, whatever else, I, I don't know what good it does to post stuff on Facebook. I, I think Facebook ought to inspire us and teach us and grow us. It's not a place for debate. It's not a place for disunity. Because here's the truth. After all of that is said and done, what does it change? Your job, my job, your call, my call is that we come together in one accord and that we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to rest in us, to enable our voices in such a way that the listeners can hear that we are the kingdom of God alive on earth, being worked into the culture, relationship by relationship, friendship by friendship, race by race, ethnicity by ethnicity, diversity. We embrace it. We love it people. We love people. We love people. We love all people. We love all of the people. We don't post on Facebook because it divides people. It hurts people. It disenfranchises people. We are called to this vital and vulnerable smallness. We're not supposed to be out there parading around. We're supposed to be in here loving and caring one person at a time Standing up for justice, fighting racism, standing up for mercy, but impregnating the society and the culture with a life that is the kingdom of God alive on earth. Don't ever let anyone tell you that that doesn't matter. That is the vital, vulnerable smallness of the kingdom, and it is vital to who we are. Forget the former things. Don't focus on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And that's what we're celebrating. And that's who we are. You go be the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God alive on earth. Let's pray. God help us. Guide us. Teach us what it would mean for us to be in one accord holding the principles of the kingdom in a precious and powerful way. Bless those who serve in the vital and vulnerable places of smallness and obscurity. Remind them that of such is the kingdom of God. The Timothys, the Epaphroditus, those who really undergird and underwrite the reality of what the kingdom is all about. Would you pull us together as Montrose Church, Pasadena, Montrose, all of us, pull us together in such a way that we are of one accord so that the Holy Spirit might rest on us and empower us and we might speak in ways that speaks the language of all of those who need to hear. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. God bless. Let's worship as we close together this morning. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.